Precious Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you again for your word. And now as we talk about Peter, I pray that his life will be a living example for us. Lord, speak to us about your love and reveal your character to us today. In the name of your precious Son, we pray. Amen. Okay, you have your worksheet here. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. Now, we'll just set the scene. It's Passover in Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that He's about to be betrayed. He knows He's about to suffer. He knows He's about to be crucified. And He's about to spend this last moment with His disciples. If you ever want to read some of the most moving words of Christ, read the last moments of His time with His disciples. These are the moments where He wants to share the most important thing He can with them. Because He knows that He's going away. And He wants them to remember the last words. And so here we have Luke chapter 22. They've sat down for the supper. Jesus showed them the service of humility by washing their feet. They broke bread together. And now the disciples were starting to dispute among themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Because you see, Jesus, just a few days before, had entered Jerusalem on a donkey in the triumphal entry. And they were ready to crown Him king. And the disciples were so excited because they knew that they were going to be on part of the leadership team. They knew that when the, when the new kingdom was going to be ushered in, that they were going to be able to stand on stage. Maybe one would get to give a seminar. Maybe someone else would get to give a nice little speech. Maybe someone else would get to wear a name tag that had a special thing on it like, Disciple. Or, Special Disciple. And so they started to dispute among themselves. When God establishes, when Jesus establishes His new kingdom, who, what's going to be the hierarchy? So who's going to be the VP? Who's going to be the public relations, relations director? And they started to argue amongst themselves. They had a misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom. And so here Jesus is trying to explain to them what's really going to happen. He's trying to explain to them that He's going to be betrayed. That they're going to forsake Him. And let's pick up the story in verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 31. And it says, And the Lord said to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three, deny three times that you know me. Peter stands up and he says to Jesus, Jesus, I will go to prison and death for you. Basically, what Peter's telling Jesus is that I love you. Do you think that Peter loved Jesus? I believe he loved Jesus. But the kind of love that Peter was professing for Jesus, what kind of love do you think he was professing for Jesus? He was professing agape love. In other words, he was professing the kind of love that says, greater love has no man than this, that he what? 
lay down his life for his friend. And so Peter stands up and he says, Jesus, I agape you. I will follow you to the prison. I will follow you to death. I agape you. But is there a difference between love and sentiment? In other words, Peter was professing agape, but he didn't really have agape. A lot of times we think that we have love for God, but really all we have is sentiment. In other words, we appreciate God, we are moved by God, we really enjoy being around people who also appreciate and enjoy God, but are we really willing to live for God? Agape love means this, I would rather die than dishonor you. That is the kind of love that God has for us. And that is the kind of love that he's asking from each one of his disciples. And the greatest manifestation of this love here on earth, one of the greatest manifestations of this love here on earth, is a commitment called marriage. Anybody here married? Okay, a few of you are married. Let's talk about the marriage commitment. Because the marriage commitment is a commitment to agape love. And it's the kind of commitment that Jesus is asking from each one of his disciples. When is it that a couple crosses the line from singlehood, single life, to married life? Well, we'll, let's start like this. I asked my wife to marry me in 2002. And she said, yes. Praise God. Now, what if the day after I proposed to her and she said yes, she called me on the phone and she said, listen, you know what? Um, I know that uh, I said yes yesterday, but I slept on it and I woke up and I really don't think you're the one for me. Would that be wrong? No, that would not be wrong. If she truly in her heart did not feel like I was the one for her, she needs to tell me that I'm not the one for her. That is not wrong at all. Now what if um, two months into the engagement, we've, we've actually picked out and reserved the church and the reception hall. What if two months into the engagement, we've already picked out the invitations and the colors She calls me on the phone. She says, you know what? I've been thinking about it, and I'm not ready to marry you. I want to call off the engagement. Would that be wrong? No. That would be right. That would be acceptable. That would be necessary. What if two weeks before the wedding, invitations are sent, tuxedos and dresses are ordered, people have purchased tickets, my wife comes to me, oh, my, my um, Kathy comes to me and says, listen, um, I know it's two weeks before the wedding and everything, but I can't marry you. Would that be wrong? No. It'd be kind of messed up, but it would not be wrong. <laughs> what if the day of the wedding, I am standing there with my tuxedo, looking, waiting for the doors to open, and I get a little note oh, you know what? I'm not ready to marry you. 
That would be really messed up. But it would not be wrong. It would not be wrong. When do you cross the line? When do you cross the line? What if while the preacher is preaching his marriage sermon, she says, I can't do it? Would that be wrong? No. What if when, when, they're, when they're singing the, the unity song and they're joining the candle and she said, I can't do it, would that be wrong? No. When do you cross the line? You cross the line when you say, I, Angelo, take you, Kathy, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold in sickness and in health, in good times and bad, for richer or poorer, till we are parted by death. That's when you cross the line. The marriage commitment is a death commitment. I know that doesn't sound too fun, but it's really beautiful. The marriage commitment is a death commitment. What you're saying before God and before your wife and bef- or husband and before the congregation is this, I would rather die than dishonor the vows that I have just made to you. What you're saying on that wedding day, when you say, till death do us part, till we are parted by death, is I would rather die than make you cry. I would rather die than turn my back on you. I would rather die than cheat on you. The marriage commitment is a death commitment. There are some cultures when after a couple gets married, the very next thing that they do is they go to the graveyard and buy their plots next to each other. Because what they're saying is, we are together till death. That is an example of God's agape love. And that is the example of the kind of commitment that Jesus is asking from us as his disciples. He wants us to come to the point in our relationship with Jesus where we say to him, Jesus, I am ready to cross the line. I am ready to say before you and before the world that I would rather die than dishonor you. And yet, could it be that the reason we're experiencing such little spiritual growth is because we're still dating around? Could it be that on the weekends or when we are at a GYC conference, the love is stirred up and the emotion is stirred up and the feelings are stirred up? But when we go home and the romance fades, our commitment also fades? The commitment, the death commitment, is a commitment of agape love. I went off on a tangent. Let's get back to Peter. Okay, so here we have Peter, and Peter is professing his agape love. Now, Jesus, so like Peter, there where it says like Peter, the first way we are like Peter is that like Peter, we begin with misconceptions about ourselves. Like Peter, we begin with misconceptions about ourselves. In other words, when Jesus came and, told, and predicted that his disciples would betray him, Peter said, I would never betray you. Peter says, how can you even conceive of the idea that I would fail you, Jesus? Peter did not even 
conceive of the idea that he could ever fail Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And do you think Peter was sincere in that proclamation? Yes. He was very sincere. He truly believed that he would not forsake Jesus. It was because Peter had a misconception about himself. And like Peter, we all begin with misconceptions about ourselves. And so Jesus says three things to preempt Peter's proclamation. There are three things that Jesus says. It's in Luke chapter 22. In verse 31 it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So there are three things that Jesus says to preempt the proclamation of Peter. The first thing he says is, Satan has desired to sift you. In other words, you are going to go through a very tough time. In the near future, you're going to go through a tough time. Satan has desired to sift you. He said, Satan has just heard this broad promise that you've given me, that you would never leave me or forsake me, that you would go to prison and death for me. Satan knows the public commitment that you made. And when you fail, Satan's going to rub it in. When you fail, Satan's going to start whispering in your ear. And he's going to start saying, you're not worth it. You're such a failure. You should just kill yourself. Did you know that if Satan had his way right now, you know what he wants to do to each and every one of us? He wants to take us out. Satan wants you to die. And you know the manner by which Satan wants you to die? Suicide. Satan wants you to kill yourself. Because he knows that that will bring the greatest pain to Jesus. And so Satan is constantly whispering in your ears, trying to give you thoughts of suicide. And each one of us sometimes, I know, have been caught by surprise by the thoughts that we entertain about killing ourselves. I know a lot of times in our moments of deepest despair, in our moments of deepest failure, we are surprised by the fact that we are even allowing ourselves to think thoughts such as, this life just isn't worth it. It would be so much easier if you were just dead. You should just end it. My friends, Satan wants you to kill yourself. And this is why Jesus said, Satan has desired to sift you. Satan, when you fail, is really going to rub it in. And then Jesus gives this beautiful statement, but I have prayed for you. But I have prayed for you. What Jesus is saying is, I know that it's going to happen. And when it happens, I want you to know something. I'm still on your side. When it happens, I want you to know that I'm not going to give up on you. When it happens, I want you to know, I knew it was going to happen, 
And I still love you just the same. Jesus wants Peter to remember that he's not going to give up on him. But I have prayed for you. And then finally, Jesus says unto him, And when you are converted, what? Strengthen your brethren. In other words, what Jesus says is, you're about to go through one of the most terrible experiences of your life. You're about to enter the darkest night of your soul. And you know what? When it's all said and done, I want you to use it. I want you to use the deepest failure. I want you to use the greatest wound for the sake of your friends, for the sake of your brothers and sisters. I want you to use your rock-bottom experience so that you can help others out of their rock-bottom experience. Now, it's easy for us to criticize Peter, and when we think of Peter, to think of him as just like this ignorant, you know, haughty fisherman, full of pride, as this guy who's just really quick to speak. But before we criticize Peter and his misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom of God, we should ask ourselves, could it be that we have a misunderstanding of our own selves? Could it be that we don't really know what we're capable or incapable of because the true test has not yet come? Jesus knows that we're self-deluded. Jesus knows that we don't really understand what we're capable or incapable of. And so He wants to provide provision for us. And this is how He does it. First, Peter had a threefold hope. What was, what were Peter's three, what was Peter's threefold hope? First, the first thing he hoped for was that God will do what I've always wanted him to do. In other words, Peter believed, like a fantasy, that God is going to do what I've always wanted him to do. He's going to restore the kingdom on earth, and then he's going to make me vice president. And then we're going to go and you know, beat up on the Romans and everything is going to go smoothly. Have you ever like, had that experience in your personal relationship with God? That, that like, hope? Everything's going to go nice and smooth. Now that I've accepted Christ into my life, now that I've like, broken all my CDs, that, you know, now that I've, now that I've you know, decided to be a vegetarian, it's all just going to go nice and smooth. I'm going to start reading the Bible every day. People are going to be really convicted by the stuff that I say. I'm going to go to my church and I'm going to bring a revival there. His hope was that God will do everything He's always wanted Him to do. His second hope was that life will be as I have always wanted it to be. Life will be as I have always wanted it to be. And a lot of times before we experience a rock-bottom experience, we are deluded by thinking that life will be what I've always wanted it to be. At 23, I'm going to get married. At 25, I'm going to have a child. At 27, I don't know what your ideas are. But we all have this vision for what our life will be like. And Peter had that same vision for his life. And third, I will finally be the person I've always wanted to be. I will finally be the person I've always wanted to be. 
Peter believed that it was just a short matter of time before he became that person that he knew he was supposed to be. And yet, only hours after Jesus make, after Peter makes this profession, only hours after Peter proclaims all these things about his agape love, he finds himself in a place that he never thought he would be. Yes, we have a, a comment or question? That's very good. We're going to get there. And I'm glad that you brought that up. The difference between self-delusion and the, go- the reality of the gospel. So I'm glad you brought that up and we're going to get to that. So here Peter is, three short hours later, and he's doing what he never thought he would do. He's become the person he's never thought he would be. Jesus is arrested and about to be crucified, and life is completely not what he thought it was. So like Peter, there's the next like Peter. It says, like Peter, God allows a crisis of truth to reveal what we are really made of. Like Peter, God allows a crisis of truth to reveal what we are really made of. In other words, Peter was a Laodicean. Peter believed that I am rich and increased in goods and in need of nothing, and yet he did not realize that he was wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus allowed a crisis of truth to prepare him to to reveal who he really was. Now, is this the first time that Jesus allowed a crisis of truth in the life of Peter? Can you think of another experience in the life of Peter in which Jesus allowed a crisis of truth to reveal what he was really made of? What was that other experience? Walking on water. Peter stepped out in faith. He had success for a while. And yet he began to trust in himself. And Jesus allowed Peter to begin to sink so that he could realize that he needed a savior. Jesus allowed that crisis of truth to prepare his heart so that he could understand that he really wasn't everything he professed that he was. And if you read the Desire of Ages, the chapter called A Night on the Lake, you will read in there that that Spirit of Prophecy says that had Peter learned the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach him that night on the lake, he would not have failed when the great test of his life came. So Jesus allowed this crisis of truth to reveal who he really was, and yet Peter was not willing to learn the lesson of the crisis. Had he learned the lesson of the crisis on the lake, he would not have failed when the great test came. Let's continue to read the story here. So he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're praying. Judas comes and he betrays him. And here we have Jesus coming to the court. Now let's talk about where Peter went wrong. Peter was willing to fight for Jesus. He was willing to cut a soldier's ear off for Jesus. And yet, him as well as all the other disciples scattered. Now let's find out where Peter went wrong. 
verse 54. Verse 54 of Luke chapter 22, it says, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed what? At a distance. It says they led him to the house, to the courtroom, to the court, but Peter followed at, at a distance. So that's the first place where Peter went wrong, is he followed at a distance. That was the first step towards his failure. Is he wanted to follow, but he didn't want to be so close that people would maybe grab him or, or even ridicule him. Peter was not afraid to fight for Jesus. But the Tsar of Ages says that when it came to being ridiculed for Jesus, he revealed himself to be a coward. He was willing to fight with swords and spears for Jesus. He was willing to hurt someone for Jesus. But he wasn't willing to be made fun of for Jesus. So the first place he went wrong was he followed from a distance. What is the next place, the next area where Peter went wrong? Verse 55 says, Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Who did Peter sit among? Do you know who Peter sat among? Peter sat among the mob who went and grabbed Jesus by force and took him to that place. So the first place he went wrong was he followed from a distance. The second place Peter went wrong is he mingled with the mob. He thought that he was strong enough to mingle with the mob and to blend in with the mob and not be noticed. First, he followed from a distance. And second, he mingled with the mob. Now, the, fir- the third place where Peter went wrong is that he forgot the words of Jesus. Because if we read in verse 56, it says, And a certain servant girl, and a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. 58. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And then the Bible says that immediately the rooster crowed. Peter, in defense in his own defense, forgot the words of Jesus. And in forgetting the word of Jesus, he did exactly what he promised Jesus he would never do. He did exactly what he promised Jesus he would never do. And this verse depicts the darkest moment in the life of Peter. This verse depicts the deepest wound ever inflicted upon Peter. And it was a self-inflicted wound. And yet, the beauty of the gospel is revealed in the very next words. It says, immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Verse 
When do roosters crow? In the morning. The darkest moments of our experience, the coldest moment of the night, is the moment just before dawn. And so here, in the midst of Peter's deepest and darkest failure, Jesus sends a rooster. And what that rooster means is, the morning is coming. I want to read to you all a quote from the Desire of Ages speaking about this. It's from the chapter in the court of Caiaphas. And it reads, while the, de- while the degrading oats were fresh upon Peter's lips and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looked full upon his poor disciple. At the same time, Peter's eyes were drawn to his master. So here we have Peter. He's like, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Bleep, 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 bleep. I don't know the man. Cock-a-doodle-doo. And as soon as Peter turns, he sees that Jesus, beat up, broken, bloody, is staring right at him. It says the sight of that pale, suffering face, those quivering lips, that look of compassion and forgiveness pierced his heart like an arrow. In that gentle countenance, he read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. In other words, when Peter denied Christ and he said, I do not know the man, and the rooster crowed, and he turned and saw Jesus, and Jesus was looking at him, Jesus wasn't looking at him like, told you so. Jesus wasn't looking at him like, come on, man. It says that Jesus was looking at him with pity and sorrow and love. It was that look that saved Peter. It says that Peter called to mind his promise of a few short hours before that he would go with his Lord to prison and to death. He remembered his grief when the Savior told him in the upper chamber that he would deny his Lord thrice that same night. Peter had just declared that he knew not Jesus, but he now realized with bitter grief how well his Lord knew him and how accurately he had read his heart, the falseness of which was unknown even to him. A tide of memories rushed over him, the Savior's tender mercy, His kindness and long-suffering, His gentleness and patience towards His erring disciples, all was remembered. He recalled the the caution, Simon, behold, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith failed not. He reflected with horror upon his own ingratitude, his falsehood, his perjury. Once more he looked at his master and saw a sacrilegious hand raised up to smite him in the face. Unable longer to endure the scene, he rushed heartbroken from the hall. He pressed on in solitude and darkness. He knew not and cared not where he was going. At last he found himself in Gethsemane. The scene of a few hours before came vividly to his mind. The suffering face of his Lord, stained with blood, sweat, and convulsed with anguish, rose before him. He remembered with bitter remorse that Jesus had wept and agonized in prayer alone, while all those who should have united with him in that trying hour were sleeping. He remembered his own solemn charge, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. He witnessed again the scene in the judgment hall. 
It was torture to his bleeding heart to know that he had added the heaviest burden to the Savior's humiliation and grief. On the very spot where Jesus had poured out his soul in agony to his father, Peter fell upon his face and wished that he might die. Peter came to that spot and in the full realization of his failure, Peter had hit rock bottom and it says that he wished there that he might die. So here we have Peter. He had this hope that God was going to give him everything he ever dreamed of. He had this hope that his life will be everything he ever expected it would be. He had this hope that everything is going to turn out okay. That he was going to be that person. That he was going to be that guy. And yet only a few short hours after his proclamation, he hits rock bottom. Everything falls apart. And Christ allowed this crisis so that he could grant him a new reality. And this is where number three comes in. Like Peter, the new reality of Christ's love allows for an epiphany that gets us on the road to healing. The new reality of Christ's love allows for an epiphany that gets us on the road to healing. In other words, when life doesn't turn out like we thought it would, like we thought it would, when we end up doing that thing which we said we would never do, when we come to the point where we realize that we have failed miserably in this thing called the discipleship adventure, when we finally hit rock bottom and realize that we are helpless, Jesus allows for a new reality. And that is the reality of His love for us. Jesus was crucified and buried. Peter was still in agony over his failure. Peter was still wishing that he might die. Peter was just sitting among with the rest of the disciples wondering, what are we going to do? But then in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, we have an amazing account of the resurrection of Christ. Mark chapter 16, verse 7. And it says, So we, here we have the resurrection of Jesus. And here we have the angel coming and saying that he's not here. And the angel says in verse 7, But go tell the disciples and who? Go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. The angel, God told the angel to use those specific words. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Tell Peter that I named him specifically because I want reconciliation with him. He thinks that God has given up on him. But he is wrong. He no longer believes that he is a disciple. But go tell Peter that Jesus is thinking about him. Go tell Peter that Jesus is looking for him. In John chapter 19, we have the final encounter 
of Jesus with Peter. I'm sorry, John chapter 21. So here Jesus rose from the dead. He appeared to the disciples. He revealed himself to them. And yet they were still confused. They were still kind of unsure because they thought that the kingdom was going to be an earthly kingdom. And look at chapter 21, verse 3. It says, the disciples were gathered together. They were all just gathered together there. And in verse 3 it says, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they also said, we're going with you. So here we have the disciples, three and a half years later, exactly where they started. Casting their nets into the sea. Peter said, I can't do this discipleship thing. I'm just going to try and cast my nets into the sea again. But Jesus comes to them. We, we, we read the story where he revealed himself to them. And Peter jumped in the water and he ran. And now let's go to the encounter that Jesus has with Peter. Verse 15. They had just finished eating breakfast. And Jesus says to Peter, Come on, let's go for a walk. Verse 15 says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Now we have to look at the Greek a little bit to understand this. When Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? In the Greek, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you, what do you think? Agape me? In other words, just a few days before, Jesus had stood up and said, I mean, Peter had stood up and said, Jesus, I agape you. And so now after this whole ordeal, after this rock bottom experience, Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you agape me? And this time, Peter is not so quick to say, I agape you. This time, Peter understands the limitation of his love for Jesus. And so Peter responds, he said, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. Phileo is the Greek word for not agape love, but brotherly love. It's a step down from agape love. And so Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, oh, you know what? I realized something. The truth about myself is that I don't agape you. I want to agape you. I know that I should agape you. And I know that it's wrong that I don't agape you. But Jesus, I phileo you. And then it goes on. Jesus said unto him the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? And now Peter's beginning to get a little bit uncomfortable. He says, okay, I get it. I get it, Jesus. The first time, you, you know, you, I know I, I misrepresented, I was wrong, I didn't agape you, but now you're asking me a second time. It feels like you're kind of like trying to rub it in a little bit. So let me just set the record straight. Let me tell you the second time, Jesus, I phileo you. The truth is that I just, I don't love you the way I thought I did. And then finally, Jesus says unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you... This time Jesus doesn't use agape anymore. The third time Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? In other words, is this all you have? Is this really all you have? Is phileo you? Phileo? Do you phileo me? 
And it says here that, that Peter was grieved because the third time he said, Do you phileo me? And so Peter was like, Oh, is he even wondering if I phileo him? Is he even questioning whether I phileo him? I've just acknowledged that I don't agape him. I've just acknowledged that I phileo him. And now he's asking if I phileo him. He must wonder if I even phileo him. And so here Peter says, Jesus, you know all things. You know I phileo you. So finally Peter opens up his wounds. And he says, Jesus, I phileo you. I've finally come to grips with who I really am. And Jesus says to him what? Feed my sheep. Verse 18, Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke by what, in this he spoke by which death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him what? Follow me. And so Jesus came and said, you know what? Yeah, you were, you had this delusion about who you were. You thought you could do it on your own. You thought that you had it all together. But I allowed a crisis of truth to show you the reality of who you really are. And guess what? I accept you the way you are. I just want you to be honest with yourself about the fact that you cannot help yourself. And guess what? I understand your limitations, Peter. I understand your failures, Peter. And you know what? I still want you to be my disciple. Even though I understand that you now have hit rock bottom, I still want to use you for my glory. The beauty of the gospel is this. The beauty of redemption is this, is that Jesus wants to take the worst failure of your life and use it for His glory. The beauty of the gospel is this, is that Jesus can take your biggest mistake, Jesus can take your deepest wound and use it for His glory. One of the greatest examples of this is in Jesus Christ. What was the worst thing that could have ever happened to planet Earth? What is the worst thing that could have ever happened to planet Earth? The entrance of sin. The entrance of sin is the worst thing that could have ever happened to planet Earth. Because of that one sin, we have the world that we live in today. 6,000 years later, wars and rumors of wars, people dying and suffering. And yet, what does Jesus do? He takes the greatest mistake ever. He takes the worst thing that could ever happen to the world. And who does He send? He sends Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the best thing that could have ever happened to the world. Desire of Ages chapter 1 says, Because God sent Jesus, we as human beings can become closer to God than as if we had never sinned. In other words, the worst thing that ever happened was sin. And because of that, Jesus came to this earth, became a human being, tied himself to us for eternity, and we have the potential 
to become more closely connected to God than as if we had never sinned. That, my friends, is redemption. That Jesus will take the deepest wounds, your deepest failure, your darkest experience, and He will change that thing into the greatest gift that you could ever offer the world. Have you ever hit rock bottom? Have you ever hit rock bottom? Just know that you are not alone. Like Peter, we've begun with some misconceptions about ourselves. Like Peter, Jesus has allowed this rock bottom experience so that we can understand our limitations. But like Peter, Jesus still loves us. Like Peter, Jesus still wants to use us. Like Peter, Jesus wants to reveal his character in us. And like Peter, Jesus wants to take that rock bottom experience of yours and use it for his glory. He wants to take the rock bottom experience of yours and use it to help other people out of their rock bottom experience. In the end, Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Follow me. Your rock bottom experience is almost over. The darkest moment of your night is the moment just before dawn. There is a rooster crowing. There is sunshine after the darkness. Let us pray. Precious Father in heaven, Lord, we today want to acknowledge the fact that we are broken, Laodicean, And we don't even realize the state of our hearts. And yet, Jesus, I want to thank you that you know our hearts. You know our hopes. You know our expectations. You know our fears. You know our misconceptions. And yet, Jesus, I want to thank you that you have still called us your friends. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you are still willing to work with us and use us for your glory. I want to pray, Father, that you will take whatever rock-bottom experience we have had and you will use that very thing to bring you glory. I pray, Father, that we will open our hearts to the truth about your love and that we each may experience an epiphany, a realization that there is redemption after failure, that there is hope after darkness and that there is sunshine after the night. We pray these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.